0: Well, the title of tonight's sermon is The Futility of Resisting God. The Futility of Resisting God. One of the main topics that we're going to be dealing with here in Psalm 2 is the sovereignty of God, and hence the futility of resisting God, because we're going to see that what comes from God being sovereign is that He's all-powerful, and if God's all-powerful, then there's no point in trying to resist his plan because it will never be successful. There will be nothing that will stand against him ultimately as his purpose and plan will be carried out regardless of human attempts to circumvent that or even satanic attempts to circumvent that. The plan of God will prevail. And so when you think about that word sovereignty or that characteristic or quality of God, that God is sovereign and hence then that resistance is futile, To be sovereign means to possess supreme or ultimate power. And if you want more of a breakdown on that attribute of God or that characteristic of God, you can look through the series that Eric Falstrom has been doing on the attributes of God. It's been spread out, but they all can be searched by series on the Sermon Audio link in our website and you could look at that series of God's attributes, what is God like, and you could listen to that message on sovereignty and have a whole message about that. But that's certainly the focus here of Psalm 2, that God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and nothing is going to frustrate his plans or stand against what he establishes. And so if the sovereign has supreme or ultimate power, when you think of that on a human level, it's used to refer to kings or rulers of countries. So if you refer to that's the sovereign of England, it would have referred to the king of England or the one who's in control, the ruler. And so that term would be used in a human context, but it's used to describe the sovereign rule of God as well because ultimately he is king overall. So when kids in Sunday school here at church, when they learn about God's attributes, when they come to sovereign, the phrase that goes with that is king overall. They're, learned, they're taught that that's the meaning of that attribute of God. Now there may be human rulers, but God is ruler overall. So when you think about that structure, there's none like him. The underlying idea there's no correlation whatsoever between God as the supreme ruler, the one who's over everything, and any level of human power or influence that somebody might have such that somebody would refer to them as a leader or a king or a ruler or even using that term to apply to human beings as a sovereign. There's no comparison. There's none like him at all. You see, God alone possesses ultimate power, and all else is subject to him. Everyone else, everything else. God is that kind of a God. His power is limitless. And so being one who has limitless power and being the one who is in charge of everything, that's sort of the concept when we're thinking about God's sovereign. There's this preeminence is another word that would go along with that, where he stands above everything else and everything else is subject to him. And so that's a true fact. God's sovereignty or his ultimate authority over everything, it's a fixed fact. And it's a true or fixed reality regardless of whether man recognizes it, whether whether man is, able, is willing to acknowledge that doesn't change the truth of it. It's a true statement and it's a true reality and it's fixed and unchangeable. There's nothing that can be done to compromise that attribute or characteristic of God. So now when you think about why, where would the uplifting aspect of considering God's sovereignty here in Psalm 2, where would that come from? Where's the uplifting part of the futility of resisting God? Well, the uplifting part is that as you reflect on the reality that God is in control, that God is over everything and that nothing will thwart his plans, it should be encouraging to you. When you recognize the strength of your God and who he really is, the idea of resisting him shouldn't be the thing that comes to your mind. The encouragement that comes from thinking about every word that he said is going to come true, that should be what should come to mind. His many promises to you. And if he's sovereign and limitless in his power and he always keeps his word, then you can rest and you can bank on those promises. Now think about the human realm. There's many things that people say, but they're just things people say. They're not things that you actually can 100% of the time rely on. You can always depend on. You could take to the bank, so to speak, because human beings are not limitless. They're limited. They're not infinite. They're finite. And so as human beings make promises, maybe they have the best of intentions. Sometimes they're just flat out making it up or lying to begin with. But even with the best of intentions, human beings fall short. But not God. Never. When he makes a promise, everything he promises comes true. Now think about the many promises that he makes in his word to you directly. Isn't that encouraging now to think about God's awesome, sovereign rule over everything? Now, the second aspect of that is not only does everything he say comes come true, but another aspect of that is his plans are never thwarted. So once you understand the plan, you understand how the story ends, there's encouragement in that. And that ultimately was what Kurt Witzig was talking about in his message here a few Sundays ago when I was gone. Talking about the encouragement that should come from knowing how the story ends. Knowing that the next event on the prophetic timeline for the Christian is to be caught away, to be caught up, to be raptured, to go to be with Him and be with Him for all of eternity. Now, are there other aspects to that, the way that will play out? Sure. After we go to be with Him, there'll be a period of tribulation on the earth. There'll be a second coming. There'll be a millennial, a first phase of the eternal state or the eternal kingdom, the millennial rule of Christ. We'll get to be a part of that. Then there'll be the all of eternity however you want to refer to that the eternal kingdom new heavens new earth and that will go on for all all of the rest of eternity which we can't even wrap our minds around but if you know that that's the plan Kurt's point and I think the point I would piggyback onto here with God's sovereignty is that that should be encouraging to us it shouldn't get us down it should lift us up to know that well that all ties back to God's sovereignty because if God wasn't more powerful, powerful enough to bring everything he says to fruition, if he wasn't king over everything, then we couldn't have that level of confidence in his plan or in his promises. We wouldn't be able to have that encouragement. So I hope I hope that comes through here as we look at this psalm here tonight. Reflecting on this reality, it should also cause you to trust him more. So as I think about his limitless power and how he's in control of everything all of the time not some of the time no matter how things are going from my perspective even if they seem like they're falling apart God hasn't lost control God remains in control all of the time though he allows things to happen in our lives though he allows human decisions and human choices to impact us yet he doesn't relinquish control in any of that and he says I'll work every set of circumstances together for your good even when they're not the kinds of things that are godly or righteous at all but yet they're the kinds of things that are happening and God's saying, I can even bring good from what man intends to be evil, what Satan intends to be evil, what Satan intends to undermine our faith or under or shake our faith. God says, if you look back to me in that, I can use that trial, that hardship, that circumstance, that difficulty, I can use it for your benefit. That's all a part of what we're talking about tonight and the psalmist David is talking about here in Psalm 2, reflecting on the awesome sovereign power of our God, how he is over everything. And so as I learn to trust him more by reflecting more about his sovereign character, then trusting him more, it will be a blessing in my life. It'll be a blessing to you to learn to trust him more. And ultimately, Psalm 2 reinforces that principle, that as you're convinced you see your God for who he is, as you're convinced then to trust him, that that will ultimately be a blessing in your life. Now, I told you that our insights in the psalm series isn't necessarily going to go through every psalm. It's not necessarily going to cover all of the psalm that we do go to. But tonight, Lord willing, we're going to go through all of Psalm 2. Now, I almost skipped it because I actually was making some insights and observations from Psalm 3 that we'll get to another time. But I didn't, you know, the first couple of times I read through Psalm 2, I wasn't seeing something that I wanted to turn into a message. And there's going to be a lot of psalms like that. There's, the intention of the series is not to teach through every single one of the psalms, but just as we come to things in order, uh, some, there might be some skipped along the way, we're going to have, hopefully, a word of encouragement from that psalm. But when I came to, actually, the last verses of this psalm, two, that is what gave me the, I guess, decision, helped me make the decision to actually do a sermon on this psalm and it's the last sentence it says blessed are those who put their trust in him i thought well that really ties in pretty well to the blessed man from psalm one but blessed are those who put their trust in him and then we'll work backwards from that because i think that's the ultimate point of this psalm where that's the thing we should take away you tell me afterwards if you think that that's the case so we start with the first part of psalm two Let's read these first three verses. Man naturally rebels is how I have it titled in my notes here. Man naturally rebels. Congenital rebels is how it's been said before. That we're congenital rebels. By birth, we have a I know it all, me first, kind of a mentality where we rebel against anyone and everyone that seeks to be an authority figure in our lives. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and then by extension against his anointed. Saying what? Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So let's make a few observations on these first three verses here of this psalm. Man naturally rebels. See, as a result of the fall, man is born with a natural tendency to exalt self. The byproduct of that mentality is rebellion against God's authority, plan, and direction for that individual's life. But it starts with the natural tendency to exalt self. As you exalt self, you have a high view of your own thinking, your own plan, your own decision-making process, your own wisdom. So that elevated pride gets in the way then of those that would be seeking to give you direction that God has put in your life, divinely appointed authority in your life. So that's a byproduct then of having that tendency to exalt self is that you rebel against God by nature. Now that rebellion involves a lot of different aspects, but the main focus of it, you're ultimately rebelling against God's authority to not recognize him for who he is. And because you don't recognize him for who he is, you're not trusting him. And because you're not trusting him, then you're not yielding to the direction and plan and instruction that he has for your life. It's sort of a vicious circle the way that that goes, where one leads to the next. And you see, the Bible says nobody is immune from this. And so even though we have a gathering here on a midweek service at a Bible-believing church, even though as I look around I don't see anybody here tonight, who is new to this congregation, who doesn't understand and hasn't heard the gospel message presented over and over again, still at the same time, we're all susceptible to the same thing, which is that by nature, if we let our flesh direct, if we let the sin nature rule in our lives, then we're gonna fall into the same pattern we always do, which is to rebel against God's plan for our life because we say, I'm gonna lean on my own understanding instead of trusting the Lord with all my heart. That's the natural default. Every time I get my eyes off him and I get my focus on myself or my circumstances around me. And the Bible brings that out in a lot of different ways, saying that everyone is susceptible to that same thing, starting with Romans 5.12, which I would think most of you know. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. And what came with that? Death through sin. And then death spread to how many men? All men, because all sin. The Apostle Paul carries on that same thought in Philippians 2.21 where he says, how many people seek their own? He says, all seek their own in contrast to what? The things which are of Christ Jesus. The default, when we're not being spirit-led and spirit-directed, our thinking isn't fixed on him. It's not being influenced by his word, influenced by his spirit working inside of us. The default thinking is to seek your own thing. And how many people... are susceptible again? Everyone is susceptible to that. So man naturally rebels, and that's ultimately what is being portrayed here in, in a real-time scenario here with King David writing this psalm. He's saying, these nations around me, why do they rage? Why do they plot a vain thing? Why do they set themselves and take counsel together against the Lord and then by default or extension, I said, His anointed." So we break that down a little bit more. The psalmist describes this tendency to rebel in this wonderfully descriptive language. Let's look at some of it. The nations rage. What a nice way to say people naturally rebel against God and His plan. The next line. The people plot a vain thing. That's just a manifestation of a rebellious spirit against God. Next one. The kings set themselves... And the rulers take counsel against the Lord. That's another way that rebellious spirit manifests itself. Now, what are they looking to do? Break bonds and cast away the cords. Now, depends on how you interpret this psalm. I think there's both a prophetic interpretation of this psalm that's future-looking, talking about Jesus Christ and his return, the second coming, Also, in some ways, speaking about the reception of Jesus at his first coming. So, aspects of both of that. But there's a prophetic, messianic aspect to this psalm and its interpretation. But if you acknowledge that King David is writing this, that he is constantly being under attack by enemy kings and enemy countries that are seeking to dislodge the nation of Israel from the promised land, and you read about the different battles and struggles that King David goes through in his leadership role as king over a united Israel, where Judah and Israel are together, then you're going to see where this could be very applicable in real time in that context of what's immediately happening around him. So what would breaking bonds and casting away cords refer to? Well, it refers to seeking political freedom from Israel's control over the region. Now you can read many examples if you go through the Kings and the Chronicles of different nations that were put in subjection to Israel. Not utterly destroyed, but put in subjection to them where they were paying tribute to the nation of Israel. Where they were working as a workforce for the nation of Israel, not directly as slaves, but somewhat as slaves where they were put to certain tasks and work on behalf of the nation of Israel. Now you can think of those rulers and those leaders, those kings of those nations, wanting to break free from that. But what you don't realize, or they didn't realize, in having that spirit, is was a spirit of rebellion against God directly because who had anointed David to serve as king and who had promised that land to the nation of Israel? God himself. And so for a foreign nation to reject their standing in the land was to reject God who said, this is their land. I've given it to them and their heritage. And so that's a byproduct of this rebellious attitude against God himself. So the question that is asked is, why do they do this? Why, does the, why do the nations and the kings and the leaders, why do mankind in general, why do they rebel, rage, and plot against God? Why do they set themselves up and take counsel against the Lord? Why would they do it and why do people do it in our day, including ourselves? Well, it's it's simple because mankind cannot be the final authority and at the same time submit to God and divinely appointed authority that he's put in place. If you have a self-centered, fleshly driven, sin nature driven mentality, even as a Christian, that mentality manifests itself with this idea that I'm the final authority in my life. And if I'm the final authority in my life, then God can't be the final authority in my life at that same moment. The divinely appointed leadership and authorities that he's put in my life, those can't be my authority in that moment. While, while at the same time, I'm saying, I'm my own final authority. And that's certainly true of the lost too. They're not gonna arrange themselves under God's direction and plan blueprint for their lives without even knowing God, without having even put their faith in Jesus Christ, without even trusting him in the context of the Old Testament, trusting in his provision to meet their sinfulness, though it was future looking, recognizing that they had a need and that God was the only one who could meet that need or provide a way of rescue from the predicament that they found themselves in, if they weren't even willing to trust God with that, submit to his being the authority when it comes to a solution to their sinfulness and the estrangement that they had as a result of sin from God, then they're not going to trust God's plan and His blueprint and His direction for everyday living such as a structure of who is going to be in in charge of or in control of this particular geographical area in a specific context, the nation of Israel. So it can't be both at the same time. There's the application in our lives. See, man naturally seeks freedom from authority when he should seek the proper authority to subject himself to. See, man's default thinking is to have freedom. That sense of, I want to be my own man. I want to have freedom. That means to be free of authority. But if the man understood the word of God and who God was and that he was the final authority, man wouldn't be seeking freedom from authority. Man would be seeking the proper authority to arrange himself under. And it would start with God himself. Then as he responded to God and God's truth, he would look at God's word and he would say, you know what, God has appointed or set up other levels of authority in my life on a human level that I should be seeking out to arrange myself under. Why? Because God says that would be best. But you know what? If I think I'm the the end-all, be-all, that I'm the final authority, I would never desire to arrange myself under him or under the appointed authorities that he's put in my life. And that's naturally the path that man goes down. Now, look at this word vain. The people plot a vain thing. Vain indicates that this rebellious attitude and this rebellious spirit is ultimately useless. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. You're not going to prevail in your rebellion against the Lord. Period. Full stop right there. You are not going to prevail or have find success in your rebellion against the Lord. That's true positionally in terms of salvation from the penalty of sin. Justification. But that's equally true to the process of sanctification. Progressive sanctification. Practical sanctification, however you want to refer to the life of faith or a walk of faith. There is no success to be found in rebelling against the Lord. It's useless. It's vain. You can't hope that that story or that that direction that you're on ends in happiness and joy when he says the only place that can be found is in union with me, in intimacy with me. And the only way you can experience that is to recognize who he is and conversely recognize who you are. So as we go through our day, daily routines and we find our mentality slipping into this, I'm the one in charge. I'm the one directing my own life. I know what is best. The Bible is pleading with us. God is pleading with us. The Spirit of God is pleading within us. Change your thinking. That's the idea of confessing sin is to acknowledge that my thinking isn't in alignment with yours. And until I recognize that, acknowledge that, confess that, there's no path forward because in the present, I'm doing things in opposition to the way God wants things done, which means he can lift me up and exalt me when I'll humble myself under his mighty hand. But when I won't do that and I put myself in a higher place of preeminence than him, remember Diotrephes, he, he wanted the preeminence. There's so many of us that that would be characteristic of any point in time that we would stop in a given day, where the reality is, if we're being honest, the way we're going about thinking and acting is evidence that we're seeking the preeminence. And yet, the only one worthy of that preeminence is God himself. So then you say, what's the extension of this rebellion against God? Well, the rebellion against God is stated there as also extending to rebellion against God's anointed, his anointed in verse 2. So it's really a rebellion against the Lord, but by extension, it's rebellion against his anointed. Now, like I said, there's two potential applications to this psalm, and they're not exclusive of each other. There's a real-time application in King David's life. Now, you can attribute this psalm to King David because the New Testament says it was written by King David. It doesn't say it in the psalm itself, but it says it in Acts, and we'll, we can touch on that in a second. So David is writing this. Now you can put yourself in this place as he's constantly under attack by foreign countries, foreign leaders, foreign kings, foreign rulers. And you say, why would they not acknowledge this position that God has put me in and he's put the nation of Israel in? And David has the wisdom and the foresight to see that that represents rebellion against the Lord himself because God is the one who, through a prophet, anointed David as the king over Israel, put him in that position. God is the one who made the promises to Abraham and by extension then all of his future relatives that this would be the land that the nation would possess, that this would be given to them, that this is their inheritance. And he promised that to Moses. He reminded, the people reminded of that as they dealt with Joshua and they had the conquest of the land. And this is David now recognizing that continuing resistance on the part of those who did not know the Lord to resist the nation of Israel and ultimately resist God himself. So in the first application or potential application is that immediate, real-life, real-time contextual application. Because in the immediate context, as the psalmist is writing, this refers to any Israelite king, really, that the Lord had appointed through anointment by a prophet. So the word itself means anointed one. Now, it also is the same word that refers to Messiah, but the word Messiah in and of itself doesn't exclusively refer to Jesus. It refers to anyone that was anointed. Now, you think about the legitimate rule of the sovereign king. When the sovereign king directed his spokesperson, a prophet, to anoint a particular king, that's God directly making it evidence that this is my will, this is my plan, this is my purpose, when God would instruct or direct a prophet to anoint a particular king. Now, it also likely refers to Israel nationally as chosen by God when you say they're actually resisting the Lord and his anointed. That word itself can have an aspect of being chosen, being selected. And so, by extension, if it applied to David as the anointed king, it applied to the nation of Israel as God's special chosen People, So when they rebel or resist or attack Israel, they're really attacking God. But remember, the real issue is rebellion against the Lord. Now, rebellion against the Lord, it manifests itself in rebellion against these divinely established human authorities. Now, one of them was human government. David represented that in the context of the nation of Israel as the appointed king or leader over the nation of Israel. And there's other examples of rebellion manifesting itself by rebelling against divinely appointed or established human authorities. There's human government, but there's parents, there's husbands, there's church leaders, there's even bosses as Paul gets into this idea even with, in the letter of Philemon, well other, letter, other letters too, but talking about this response that we should have to those that we work for. Now, he did it in the context of more servants and their masters or slaves and their masters. But there was this idea that God wanted us to have a certain response to operating within those parameters. And that's not something that mankind came up with. That's something that God directed toward people. So when you think about rebelling against God, obviously that's futile. That is pointless. That is a vain thing. There's no way it can succeed. But the same is true when you rebel against what God has appointed. It's not just, obviously it's useless to rebel against the sovereign king, but if the sovereign king has appointed human means, then it's pointless to rebel against them too because ultimately God is the one that you are rebelling against. You can see that in Deuteronomy 11.25, that extension that if you're rebelling against what God has, what, what God has established, then you ultimately have just as much futility in that as directly rebelling against God. And it says this. He's talking to the nation of Israel about what they're going to be facing in the future. And here's a perfect example of what they end up facing. This attack by rulers of other nations. But he says to them, no man shall be able to stand against you. Now why? Because of their connection to him. And because he's behind them. And if God is for something, there's nothing that's going to stand against it. So the Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. And there's times where, there's this one time, it's in 1 Kings, I'm not sure all of the details, but I re- remember reading it not long ago, where the enemy, I believe it was the Philistines, came up against the nation of Israel And they had this, instead of trusting the Lord, they decided we'll treat the Ark of the Covenant as some sort of a magical rabbit's foot and we'll bring that to the camp. Because if we have the Ark with us, then we'll have victory. All at the same time rebelling against God, refusing to turn their eyes to him and trusting him, refusing to arrange themselves under his leadership for their life, they decided they're just gonna treat the Ark of the Covenant as some sort of a a, a gimmick. Uh, we'll rub this lucky we'll rub this lucky foot so that we can have success. You know what though? When the Ark comes into the camp, it says that there arose in the in the camp a sound that sounded like thunder as the people of Israel cheered when the Ark came into the camp, and the Philistines were afraid. And it says specifically in that passage they were afraid because they had heard what God had done to the Egyptians still. Even that far along, that word of what God had done for this nation continued to go in front of them. And it turns out that because the people weren't operating in faith, the Philistines ended up winning that battle anyway. They took the ark, and some of you know the rest of that story, how eventually they wanted nothing to do with it because of all of the the plagues that happened in their communities and even the idea of their gods that they were worshiping falling on their face in front of the ark in their own temple. Anyway, you'll have to look at that another time. But to this verse here, when God is for something, when mankind rebels against that, that's equally futile. And God makes that promise here in Deuteronomy. Now the second application here about rebelling against God's anointed It is prophetic in nature. It's a reference to the future rebellion against Jesus Christ, the ultimate anointed one. See, the word translated as Messiah can refer to anyone anointed with special authority or function, but it ultimately refers to Jesus, the Savior of the world. The most common context of the word Messiah is this forward-looking in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. The King is here, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the Savior of the world, Jesus, the Messiah, And so in that context, there's this forward-looking rejection of God's anointed pointing to the future rejection of Jesus Christ. And looking backwards, or I skipped something here, the word Christos, the Greek word that is translated Messiah, that is, or, or anointed one is what it means, but that's always part of God's or Christ's, Full name, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ refers to him being the anointed one or the Messiah. So in his full name, that is what the Greek word is referring to. Now looking backwards, the New Testament writers reference this psalm as a prophetic reference to Jesus. Turn, if you will, so we can get a little page turning Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, I want to just show you that this psalm is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. But Acts chapter 4, we see an example of how you see the prophetic connection between this psalm, and that's why people refer to it as a messianic psalm, and Jesus Christ. We're going to pick up in verse 27, Acts chapter 4, verse 27. All right, well, in verses, verse 25 is where we have this psalm connected to David as the author. How do we know that? Because God is the author of the scripture. He inspired every word in the, in the scripture. So here in Acts chapter 4, if you looked at verse 25, it says, Who, by the mouth of who, your servant David have said. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said. Now he quotes Psalm 2. He attributes these words to David. And what does it say? Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The king of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ or his anointed one is what that refers to. Now pick up in verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, this is an amazing passage. We could do a whole message just right there. There is nothing that human individuals can do to derail the plan of God. You see how in 28, the behavior and the actions of Herod and Pontius Pilate, Gentiles and Israel, even though they were gathered together with evil motives, but they could only do whatever your hand and your purpose, referencing God himself, determined before to be done. See, God's plan isn't going to be thwarted. God can raise up leaders. He can take them down. He can work in spite of them. He can put limits on them. He can allow them a certain amount of autonomy and free choice, free will. At the same time, he can do it in a way that doesn't violate his sovereignty. Now, when you get to heaven, you can ask him how that all balances out and how that all works out. I can't, I can't even fully explain that. But yet, at the same time, the sovereignty of God isn't, isn't going to allow his plan to somehow be sidetracked by Satan or men in general. But you see that this rejection and this rebellion against the Lord's anointed one, there's a very messianic flavor to it, at least looking backwards. Now in real time, there's also an application there with David himself, and I think some have sought to pick one or the other. I don't think there is one or the other. It can be equally true in context, in time, in David's life that he was facing this exact scenario, while at the same time being a good metaphor or a prophetic look into the future rebellion of mankind against Jesus Christ and the rejection of him. So that final rebellion will take place. The final rebellion will happen in the millennial phase of the kingdom against Christ, who at the time will have been ruling and reigning on earth in person. He'll be right there. And yet mankind, as Satan is let loose toward the end of that period of time, they'll be gathering for one final rebellion. And I don't think this has to refer to just that rebellion. The idea of the the ruler's and the kings of earth rebelling against or rejecting or refusing god 's anointed one jesus there's other examples of that too, just even leading up to his leading up to his death. Now, if we keep going with Psalm two here, so man naturally rebels against God. there we have it, it applies to everyone, universally true principle in the context it was true of the nations that were in the midst of or surrounding the nation of Israel. In the future, it'll apply to all those that reject Jesus and side with Satan against Jesus Christ. But then what do we have here coming next? We have a section here about how God is not impressed. Man naturally rebels, but God is not impressed by man's rebellion. Let's read verses 4 through 6. So that's what mankind is going to do. But, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So what is God's response to human rebellion against him? I think this is perfect. To There's an there's an aspect of anthropomorphism here, you, uh, associating human qualities and characteristics to God here. But it says he laughs. That's God's response to human rebellion against him. That's ultimately his response to Satan's rebellion against him too. It's of no consequence to God. He laughs. It's like watching a little guy challenge a much bigger guy. The bigger guy often thinks it's somewhat amusing. Have you ever seen that? Where a little guy kind of just forgets who he is for a second forgets he's a little guy kind of goes up against the big guy and the big guy isn't even bothered by it really just kind of laughs at it that happened to me once I was playing intramural basketball and I drove down the center of the lane and ran into a brick house that guy was probably like 6 foot 8 about 300 pounds I was knocked to the ground I thought it was a foul he thought it was a charge I got up and forgot I was a little guy. I shoved him right in the chest, picked a fight with him, and he just laughed at me. (laughs) He didn't slug me in the face. He just started laughing and he said, are you you being serious right now? (laughs) So he saved me a beating there. That was nice of him. But that's God's response. I mean, that's a, a pitiful example compared to God as he views man's rebellion, he just laughs at it. Um, it's not amusing to him at all like it was amusing to this guy in basketball. But it's of no consequence to God to watch man get too big for their britches. Because sometimes you see a defiant toddler do that with their parents too. And sometimes, I know my wife and I, a number of different times, we'd have to, we'd watch whatever they were saying or doing <laughs> we'd actually have to turn away from them and kind of shield our faces because we couldn't stop laughing. Like it was horrible behavior. On the other hand, it was kind of funny. And so I don't know if you've experienced that. Maybe I'm alone in some of these experiences, but that's God's response to this. He laughs. But then it goes beyond that. He mocks them. Verse 4b, he holds them in derision. That means he mocks them. It's very similar to the way Goliath viewed David. In 1 Samuel 1742 it says that when Goliath looked at David, he disdained him. He had no he wasn't impressed. God isn't impressed by this rebellion against him. So then what does he do? He laughs, he mocks them, holds them in derision. But then he sets them straight. That's the last part of it. Verses five and six, that's what God does, he sets them straight. You see, the kings and the rulers of the world are terrified. To hear God speak. You see that in verse five. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath in his wrath, and what does that cause them? And it causes them distress. His deep displeasure in their rebellious spirit and attitude, it causes them distress as he speaks to them in his righteous anger. He sets them straight. See, man's rebellion against God is not does not go unnoticed it causes God deep displeasure. God doesn't ignore this. He's displeased with it. So then he simply reminds them that he decides who is in authority. That's what verse 6 is really saying. He says to them, I'm the one who set up the king on my holy city of Zion. Now, a lot of these anointments took place in Jerusalem. The idea of Zion can refer to this uh, geographical area. Uh, There's some dispute about where it is in proximity to Jerusalem, but they're really the hill of Zion and Jerusalem are somewhat used interchangeably. So a king has been anointed. By who? By me. I had a prophet anoint King David. That's the context here. And as David became king, that was a reflection of my direction in all of this. And so he says, I don't care if you're kings or rulers of surrounding nations. That has no bearing on the fact that I have established a local king for Israel David himself. And that will be true in the future when you look at the messianic aspect to that too. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. So he sets them straight. He reminds them, I'm the one who's in authority. He says, in effect, that's simply the way it is. There's no discussion about it. This isn't a democratic kind of a scenario. He says, no, I'm the one who's sovereign. I'm the one who's all powerful and this is what I chose to do. So in the immediate context, that's the anointed Israelite king. In the prophetic context, that's Jesus Christ the Lord. He said, God decided in his plan, in conjunction with the rest of the Trinity, it was determined that Jesus would rule and reign in the future kingdom, millennial kingdom. Man has no say in that. Man has no opinion about it that God will listen to. That's just the way it is. And so that's what God is saying there in verse 6. He's, he's just stating this. This is what I determined, and this is the way it's going to be. What a, an amazing reminder of how small a finite mi- mankind is compared to an infinite God. But then the next section we have is God keeps his promises. So in light of his sovereignty, in light of his power... He's a promise-keeping God. And when he decided something there in verse 6, that's just the way that it's going to be. And he says, I keep my promises. Let's read verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. Now, this is David's speaking. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. Now, what had God said to David? Apparently, he had said, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations of your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Note that if he doesn't trust God, doesn't ask of it in the sense of that's a response of faith is what God is talking about there, then he's not going to get it. You have not because you ask not, ask not in faith. So there's a correlation there. We'll just keep going though. I'll give you the nation of the inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's veil. So God keeps his promises. See, King David now quotes what God told him. And again, he is the author of this. We wouldn't know that again other than Acts 25. And David is also referred to as God's son, another thing that gives credence to having a real-time application of the psalm in addition to the messianic aspect to it. The real-time application is David wrote it. He is God's anointed one, and he's referred to as God's son. If we had time, we would turn to Second Samuel seven fourteen, but we gotta keep moving. The prophet Nathan says this. Well, he says this, God speaks to the prophet Nathan, who now then repeats this. But it says, God says to Nathan, I will be, about David, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But that's how God, through Nathan, refers to David. He'll be my son. Now, interesting that he refers to, and we'll see some of the correlation there with Jesus himself, the only begotten son, the begotten son, You know, it starts with saying, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, but then we have that word begotten. Today I have begotten you. So uniquely, unique, one of a kind in the context of Jesus Christ, begotten in the sense of chosen or given a particular purpose in the case of David. See, everything God says is a promise because he always keeps his word. So no matter what God says, you can view it as a promise because it will never fail. See, God speaks in the language of certainty. That's an observation that I hope you find encouraging here. Everything God says, he can say with a sense of certainty because everything he says always comes true. So note this language. You are. You are my son. Then I have begotten you. I will give you the nations for your inheritance. You shall break them. You shall dash them. These are words of certainty. And when we are trusting in our God, we can have that sense of certainty in our lives because God keep, always keeps his word. Now, there's additional prophetic elements in Messianic language found here in these verses as identified by the New Testament writers. We're going to go real fast through it, again, for the sake of time, but my begotten son. In Acts 13.33, it says this, God has fulfilled this for us their children, in that He has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. So, how do we know that this is a reference back to this psalm? And so that, so, hence, there's a messianic aspect to this psalm because it says that, as this was written in the second Psalm, "You are my Son; today I have begotten you." So clearly, that's a reference now being applied in backward a backward looking application to Jesus. In Hebrews one 5a, it says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In reference again to Jesus. Now you think about the messianic comparison and application to this psalm. You see that with the use of the rod of iron. In Revelation nineteen fifteen, it says, Now out of his mouth, Jesus' mouth, goes a sharp sword. And with it, he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them, catch this, with a rod of iron the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress in the fierceness of his wrath of wrath of almighty God behind him. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That same reference to the rod of iron you can find in Revelations 2.25-27 too. So there's some great reminders there. God keeps his promise. That's going to be true with the messianic promises that are yet to be fulfilled. But God's plan ends with Jesus' total victory. That's, that's the takeaway on the messianic application. God's plan, it ends with Jesus' total victory, and that should encourage your soul. So then what's the takeaway or the conclusion of all this? Well, verses 10 through 12, man should trust him. If man naturally rebels against God, but God is not impressed, and if God always keeps his promises, then man should trust him based on that track record of faithfulness. Verse 10, now therefore... This should be your conclusion. Those who are seeking to rebel against God, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear instead of rebellion. Rejoice with trembling instead of rebellion. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. So this section, it represents mankind's only reasonable response to being reminded of God's majesty, supremacy, and sovereignty. See, having a proper response to God starts with proper instruction about who he is. That's why I love in verse 10 where it says, Now therefore, be wise, O kings. How can you have wisdom? can't have wisdom apart from God's instruction. Be instructed. This is God speaking to you as David is speaking what God said to him about don't mess with God's anointed. Don't mess with what God has determined to be true or determined to be His plan. It's futile to rebel against God. So be wise based on what, again, that instruction that you've now been given. You have the opportunity now to respond in the only way that man ever should to being informed about who God is and what His plan is for their lives. You see, seeing how great God is should cause you to trust Him then by extension, it should cause you to trust his plan. That's another way of saying what is being said to these kings. You see who God is. He laughs at your rebellion. You're nothing to stand up to him. If that's the case and he's the only wise God, the king of kings and lord of lords, then you should trust him. If you trust Him, then you should by extension trust His plan. And His plan involves the nation of Israel operating in this sphere. In the future, it, imply, it involves Jesus as the Messiah ruling and reigning for a thousand years. It involves the eternal plan of God where God will collect to Himself everybody who's put their faith in his, the work of His Son. And that He'll prepare a place for them. And that they'll spend all of eternity with Him. And that it will be absolutely perfect. Get on board that plan. Put your trust in Him. That's sort of the idea here. You see, the primary takeaway there, like I spoke of earlier, is that blessed are those who put their trust in Him. You see, you are blessed or divinely favored when you trust God. So then service, worship, and submission are the natural byproducts of trusting Him. Don't get it out of that order. As you trust Him, then what will the response be? Look at verse 11. You've got the instruction. Does that cause you to trust him? If it does, then this should be your response. Serve the Lord with fear, awe, respect, and reverence. What's the next part? Rejoice with trembling. Next part, kiss the son. The idea there is submit to the son like you'd kiss the ring of a king. Arrange yourself under the divinely appointed authority in this context. The son is Israel and David in the messianic context is Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. But none of that fruit, serving, rejoicing, submitting, none of that is possible without first trusting him. And so many people confuse that order. So many good Bible teachers at times confuse that order. But you see, God alone is the sovereign and all-powerful king. Every word he says is going to come true. His plans will never be thwarted not by you or anyone else. And because of that, rebelling against God is futile, the title of our message. Now, what will your response be to being reminded of this truth? That's the real takeaway. You know, so often we plow through some of this and you say, I'm not sure how that applies to my life. Well, it's the futility of resisting God. That's how it applies to your life. If you see him for who he is, your only reasonable response should be to trust him, not rebel against him. But the question is, what is your response going to be? To continue on with this, I'm the only authority in my life? I'm the only one who knows best? Are you going to continue on with that mindset? You see, you're never going to be blessed unless you're convinced that God is worthy of your trust and you learn to trust Him. To thrive spiritually, you have to learn to trust Him. How many times do you have to learn that? Over and over and over again, you have to decide that anyway. may not learn that, but you have to be reminded of it over and over again. Because in any moment, at any given time, that your default kicks in, your default of rebelling against God, doing your own thing, you're going to be in the same place as those with the rebellious spirit here in Psalm 2. But every single time that you... Humble yourself under his mighty hand. Recognize who he is. Respond to that by trusting him. Allow him then to work in you so that you have a, a spirit of service toward him, an attitude of gratitude about what he's done, that you're rejoicing about who you are and who he is and who you are to him, that you're arranging yourself under his direction and his instruction, his blueprint, his plan for your life. Then that's where you're going to be blessed. Blessed. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your great love. Thank you that you saw fit to rescue sinners like us. Thank you that you desired to live life with us. Thank you that you gave us instructions and a blueprint in your word and a plan for our lives. Thank you that you gave us your spirit to direct us, to empower us, to enable us, to make living in dependence on you possible. Pray that we would do that, that we wouldn't carry on with our natural default of thinking we know best or rebelling against you. Pray that we would just have attitudes that are humble towards you, that we would exalt you and recognize just who you are and that you're worthy of our trust, that we would learn to trust you to a greater and greater measure as each and every day goes by, that we would draw nearer to you and not distance ourselves from you. That we would learn to depend on you more instead of being independent from you. That we would learn to heed your instruction for our lives instead of rebelling against you. Thank you for these truths again and this great reminder. In Jesus' name, amen.